Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today's episode is a full episode and a return to the narrative where we left it back in February at the end of the Battle of Waterloo. Since then, we've done a special episode on battlefield surgery, and then we did a episode on the amazing Annie Besant and the Matchstick Girl strike, which was the Easter special. They say that the mark of a man is how he copes with getting knocked down. Personally, I think that phrase just perpetuates some unhealthy stereotypes, but let's run with it for this episode. When we left the show last, it was nightfall after Waterloo. Napoleon had suffered a catastrophic defeat. Most people honestly either fall to pieces after relatively small setbacks, or they are too afraid to take risks that might end in failure. Napoleon, though, was now suffering massive defeat. He had been beaten before in his career and exiled, but there was a different air to this. This was the wreck of his entire army. In what had seemed an even contest, he was on the verge of triumph. It really was his last great throw of the dice. Can you imagine the stress he would have been under? He was the Emperor of France. The country and the lives of its people were his responsibility. His beloved army was scattered and in retreat. He had political enemies at home. It seems to me that he suffered some kind of mental breakdown, as his behaviour over the next few days indicated. Perhaps the closest I can describe it is to imagine your business goes bankrupt and your partner leaves you on the same day. That's sort of the stress Napoleon was under, except far worse. Except far worse. Whatever his many faults, Napoleon loved France, and he must have known that this would have dire consequences for his beloved homeland. As the 19th of June arrived, Marshal Rouchy actually won the last real French victory against the Prussians. It was for nothing. News of the disaster of Waterloo reached him early on June 19th. The messengers were so overwrought that at first Grouchy could barely understand them. When he did, his blood must have run cold. Not only was this absolute defeat, but he knew instantly when he had refused the advice of General Girard the previous day to march his men towards the sound of the gunfire at Waterloo, he had contributed to that defeat. If he had listened to his subordinate's advice, perhaps he would have been able to help at Waterloo. Immediately, Marshal Rouchy began making his excuses, and he would continue to do so for the rest of his life. The main French army was in dire straits. Almost all of it was a confused mass of men, wagons and horses. 
many had thrown away their weapons and were helpless against the vengeful Prussians. Some sources state that the Prussians were killing wounded and prisoners. Some French troops committed suicide rather than fall into Prussian hands. If even a quarter of the French army could have got organised, they could have held up the Prussians at the critical choke point provided by the town of Gennep, where the bridge crossed the River Dial. It would have provided critical hours for the main of the army to reform and get to safety. It wasn't to be. Only a few regiments of the old guard retained the iron discipline and weapons for an ordered retreat. There would have been a big difference in a post-Napoleonic French political order if the army had been able to stage a fighting retreat from Waterloo rather than being swept away in a rout. The army could have been a nucleus for new recruits, acted as a counterbalance to the Chamber of Deputies and made an Allied invasion a much tougher prospect. It was the chaos, not the actual casualties, made recovery impossible. Marshal Rouchy was retreating too. He was doing it in good order, and not just because he hadn't been involved in the catastrophe at Waterloo, but because he actually seemed to up his game considerably. He performed a masterful fighting retreat. He managed to recapture some lost cannon, fend off Prussian cavalry, and take up fortified positions in the Mur. He got plentiful support from Napoleon-loving locals. He beat off a Prussian attack, and even managed to kill the uncle of the future Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. Then, another fighting retreat, blowing up bridges as he went. Again, the intangibles of psychology are at work here. Why did he only start performing at this moment, when it was, in a way, critical and yet, in a way, unimportant? Was it that he needed the shock to his system? Had he just been too inexperienced and complacent before Waterloo, only to be galvanised by the news of the defeat? Or is it just that the fighting retreat needed less initiative from him? We might never know those reasons. For the Allies, too, the night after battle was as much about mourning the dead as it was about celebrating. The Duke of Wellington was physically and mentally exhausted. He had had an incredibly stressful day, almost always under fire, and watching as the fate of Europe itself seemed to hang in the balance. He visited his friend and aide-de-camp, Sir Alexander Gordon, as soon as he left the battlefield. Sir Alexander had to have his leg amputated at the groin, and if you listen to my battlefield surgery episode, you'll know just how incredibly dangerous that was. After visiting his friend, Wellington sent news to Louis Eighteenth in Ghent, telling him of the victory, before having dinner. He spoke very little, but kept glancing up anxiously in the hope some of his missing staff officers and his friends might arrive. Eventually, he collapsed into bed exhausted. At 02.30, he was woken by a surgeon, David Hume, who told him that his close friend and comrade, Sir Alexander, had died. Hume 
began listing the casualties of the day, and Wellington burst into tears before saying, quote, Thank God I don't know what it is to lose a battle, but certainly nothing can be more painful than to gain one with the loss of so many of one's friends. End quote. This is true as Wellington had never lost a major battle he commanded, and he actually had a close circle of aristocratic friends in the staff, a good number of whom died. As a commander, he cultivated the mask of icy indifferent, emotionless bravery. But underneath, he was still a deeply feeling man. How far this extended to the common soldier is open to debate, but he was careful with his men's lives and welfare, to a degree that Napoleon wasn't. I think it is certain that a lot of men were feeling similar emotions in the British, Dutch and Hanoverian ranks. The Prussians seem to have been more interested in chasing the French and killing them. Blücher especially wanted to push on to Paris, skipping sleep, resupply or food for his men if it meant he could take the city. It is entirely possible he would have sacked it thoroughly or even burned it to the ground. Wellington wouldn't be rushed, though. As he later said to a Prussian liaison officer, quote, Do not press me on this point, for I tell you it will not do. If you were better acquainted with the English army, its composition and its habits, you would say the same. I cannot separate it from my tents and my supplies. My troops must be kept well supplied in camp. Order and discipline are to be maintained. It's better that I should arrive two days later in Paris than that discipline should be relaxed. End quote. After receiving the news of the death of his friend in the casualty list, Wellington got up and began writing reports. His terse dispatch to London could almost sound like he lost the battle. He singled out a few officers for praise, including Sir Alexander. He was a bit less generous to the Earl of Uxbridge, Lord Henry Paget, than the man deserved, given the amazing performance of the heavy cavalry and the fact that he had his leg blown off by a cannonball. Whether this is because of a lack of general discipline in the cavalry and the loss of control of the charge, or perhaps just Wellington's personal style, or perhaps because the Earl had previously had an affair with Wellington's sister-in-law, but we don't know the exact reason. Still, an initially furious Lady Uxbridge was eventually consoled when the Pagets were elevated to the rank of Marquis of Anglesey, The name Paget will come up again and again in the Victorian era, so this is a family name to remember. I really wish I had time to do an episode on the Earl, because he is a really, really interesting guy. He will appear again in this podcast. And of course, Wellington could be very, very sparse with his praise, and the British artillery were particularly badly served in terms of receiving longs and praise, and many gunners felt extremely hard done by and overlooked after their hard service of the day. 
As the Allies left the battlefield of Waterloo, its fame spread. Displaying typically ugly human behaviour, tourists descended on the battlefield, eager to see the spot where Wellington triumphed and Napoleon the Corsican Ogre was defeated as they saw it. The field was not cleared in the way we would today. Aristocratic ladies and gentlemen took musket balls, clothes and badges, and even bone fragments as keepsakes to say they had been at Waterloo. Unearned privilege was on full display. John Croker bought a Legion d'Honneur that had been looted from a dead French officer, and Walter Scott himself obtained a cuirass riddled with holds. Lady Wilde took some ashes from the remains of a dead guardsman at Hougamon home with her in an envelope, whilst a visiting reverend collected some skull fragments. Still, for the locals, it was an opportunity, as this excellent quote from the aftermath by O'Keefe shows, quote, A mile beyond Waterloo, most tourists would leave their carriage at the village of Mont-Saint-Jean and perhaps engage a battlefield guide. A local man, whose house had been filmed with wounded after the battle, found regular employment as such and professed a deep hatred of Napoleon. And all for one man, he would say. He would tell his English clients of the sufferings he had witnessed. Nothing but sawing off legs and sawing off arms. Then he would repeat his refrain, Oh mon Dieu, and all for one man. And, following Bonaparte's capture and exile, he would add, Why did you not put him to death? Why indeed? It was a common sentiment. The Prussians wanted to, and poetry was written about it. The poet laureate of the period, Robert Southey, wrote, quote, for him alone had all this blood been shed. Why had not vengeance struck the guilty head? One man was cause of this world of woe. Ye had him, and ye did not strike the blow. End quote. This was wholly unfair, of course. And even worse, it is terrible poetry. As always, the reality was much more complex. Napoleon alone was not responsible for all the bloodshed. The causes of any war are usually complex and multifaceted. Still, in the popular mind of the time, Napoleon was a tyrant and he started the war. News gradually reached the courts of Europe. Naturally, the British were amongst the first to get the news. Major Henry Percy carried Wellington's famous dispatch. Carrying a dispatch was considered a mark of high honour. He also carried the captured eagles. Remember Sergeant Ewart and his revenge for the death of his beloved commanding officer? He had taken the eagle in desperate fighting, cutting and killing in a frantic melee. Well, now the eagle would be paraded and displayed and cheered as a symbol of Britain chaining the eagle. Ewart would naturally be given the full hero's legend treatment. But he and the other unsightly veterans would not be coming home to a land fit for heroes, as the saying goes. 
Soon, the whole of Britain was abuzz with the news. The Great War was finally over. Peace, freedom and the natural order could return to Europe. Yet, the problem with freedom is that its definition is in the eye of the beholder. Freedom meant a very different thing to a conservative British philosopher than it did to an American founding father. Both would argue that they were representing the true strands of freedom, liberty and justice. But both might arrive at very different conclusions about what those terms really represented. In France and the rest of the royal courts of Europe, decisions had to be made to capture Napoleon, to kill him, to banish him. Should he be exiled again, or perhaps allowed to go to America? Would he somehow cling on and scrape an army together to defend France? If not, who would rule France now? Napoleon's son? Louis XVIII? The Duc d'Orléans? Or would the country be broken up, with its territory gobbled up, by Prussia, Austria, Britain and Spain. To French minister Joseph Fouché, the ruthless, self-obsessed traitor who was the chief of the French secret police, it was clear it had to be King Louis XVIII. France had to be a monarchy again, and he, Fouché, was the only man suited to well advise the king. Fouché's treason had been a big contributor to so many of the disasters in recent French history. Fouché was a master manipulator and he was confident that naive Republican patriots like the famous Lafayette would be easy to manage. Fouché was already scheming to exercise total control over the Chamber of Deputies and then become puppet master of France the equally treacherous and self-obsessed foreign minister Talleyrand was also for a French monarchy. The various European powers, though, would need to be persuaded. After all, it was entirely possible they could sweep into France, break it up and share it between themselves. Marshal Blücher was talking wildly of horrific acts of revenge, of burning Paris, an axe that might border on genocide. The British were less committed. Britain was already being swept by a wave of sentimentality. They had beaten Napoleon by themselves at Waterloo, they felt. Surely such an act of near-mythic triumph required them to be gracious victors. It would stain their honour to engage in reprisals or the execution of Napoleon or the destruction of France. Many were uncomfortable with the idea they could just impose government on the French. And besides, how would it look to history if they killed Napoleon? That would cheapen the victory. More far-sighted British statesmen were deeply concerned with the idea of France being broken up. They didn't want to hand ultimate power over the continent from France to Prussia or Russia. The painter, Benjamin Hayden, probably expressed the sentiment that a lot of the British were feeling, quoting again from the aftermath by O'Keefe, 
where he is quoting Hayden. Quote, the Duke of Wellington had saved for this age the intellect of the world. While, had Napoleon triumphed, we would have been brought back to barbarism. End quote. Still, the feeling was not universal in Britain. Many British had been pro-revolution and pro-Napoleon. Some had suffered under the British aristocracy, others were Enlightenment liberals, and some were just general admirers of Napoleon. Whether sympathetic, happy, or just anxious for news about relatives and friends who were in the conflict, Britain was swept up in a mania at the news. Full, overblown sentiments were let free. Artwork and prose tended to the fantastical. Good taste was forgotten. This will be very familiar when we move into the Victorian period. It was no longer a victory thanks to God and our soldiers. It became, in my words, admittedly made up, but I think this is the right style of it, a most marvellous event comparable only to Caesar's triumph over the Gauls. Now as then, our troops did display such fortitude and vigour that notwithstanding the enemy's utmost assertions and great excitement, they were turned back as the waves breaking against the rock. Such was the courage on display that Mars himself must surely have graced our arms and added greater lustre to the already illustrious achievements of our noble banners. Yes, I made that up, but it really is in keeping with how the language style is going to develop. Good example is the Opera House in Covent Garden, which produced a piece of commemorative art for Waterloo, and said, quote, A grand transparency representing Britain succoring France. And said, quote, A grand transparency representing Britain succoring France, personified by an interesting female figure in a supplicant posture, attired in a robe covered in fleur-de-lis. On her side stands the British lion, a group of attributes, and above, with expanded wings, appears a figure of fame surrounding the trumpet. End quote. And, if it sounds odd when we said representing Britain succoring France, that's not succoring like a sucker punch, sucker as in to give aid to France. The image being created here is that Britain came to France and helped her in her hour of need to free her from Napoleon, rather than being at war with France. And this was positively restrained compared to the language that was used by the Morning Post newspaper to celebrate its collection for the veterans, reaching a total of £100,000. And when you listen to this quote I'm about to read, please remember Plum was slang for £100,000 and this was a colossal sum of money. Quote, Hail Britain, thy bounty beyond all dispute, must with wonder strike other lands dumb, when they see that thy heroes as victory's fruit receive from thy kindness a plum. A plum for those who fought and bled, already they declare. But some have confidently said, 
will make that plum a pear, end quote. Okay, some things to think about here. The first is that I hope you like this kind of overblown hyperbole because this is going to get more and more common as we go into the Victorian age. Language, ornate, overcomplicated and verbose is a Victorian trademark. It can be delightful, baffling or tedious, but I do love it. So get used to it. The second thing that perhaps leaps out at me is to wonder how much of that money reached the genuine working class veterans of the army and how much was used effectively. I suspect it went through the filter of aristocratic monument building, then middle class worthy charities, well before any trickle down actually reached the veterans themselves. And it's also worth noting that you have to say that that piece of humour is not perhaps as funny and clever as the author wanted. Still, British feelings weren't something that Fouché would be able to simply ignore. If the British let the Prussians off the leash, then France faced destruction. And it wasn't as if the British were historically friendly to France either. Centuries of continental war against the French made the two nations natural enemies. And this would be an ideal opportunity to repay France for what Britain considered to be French aggression and unwarranted interference during the American War of Independence, when French help was instrumental in turning the tide of war in the Americans' favour. This could be payback time. At the very least, Fouché and Talleyrand knew that Britain would be seeking to take advantage and territory from the defeated France, surely. Wellington was now supreme commander in Europe, and the new political order was in many ways up to him. As a natural conservative aristocrat, he would look favourably on Louis XVIII being given power, but equally he was known to want to see a government that was acceptable to the French people, perhaps the Duc d'Orléans, and it is unlikely that Wellington had a particularly high opinion of Louis XVIII in person. That wouldn't remotely suit Fouché. So, playing up this British myth of a solo British triumph might actually be useful to Fouché and Talleyrand. Greatness and generosity in victory would be quite helpful to them at this point. Paris, of course, was in gossipy uproar. Whatever the press had been saying recently, there was a buzz in the air. Rumours circulated. The chambers went into emergency session. More rumours. The Prince Jerome had made a panic to return to Paris, liquidated his government stocks and fled. That there were only 200 Imperial Guard left and Napoleon had been killed. Everywhere the cry, the Prussians were coming. Regardless of the future, Napoleon remained technically emperor He was in full flight to France, ahead of his army. This wasn't to abandon them through cowardice. Napoleon was never a coward. 
He just had a bigger picture to focus on. Who would rule France and could France organise a defence? Staying with a chaotic mob would not help save the nation and need saving it did. Sadly for the emperor, his personal baggage and later his treasury wagon were looted by lucky Prussian troops, losing him a fortune. Worse, the loot included a list of French spies and many plans. Nor was Napoleon the only considerable figure involved. There were a lot of Napoleonic loyalists who would still rally to the emperor or his son. There were many revolutionaries like Lafayette who thought the overthrow of Napoleon would restore the Republic. They were as deluded as the original assassins of Caesar at the fall of the Roman Republic, but they still had a powerful voice in the French government. If Napoleon could rally them to his cause, perhaps a Republican resistance movement would threaten Fouché's plans. There were other powerful figures to consider. There was Grouchy, with his retreating force, almost unscarred by battle. There were the Marshals, Soult and Clausel, as well as Napoleon's loyal brother-in-law, Lucien. Above all else, though, there was Marshal Davout. What would that icy, disciplined and ruthless man do? His loyalty to Napoleon had been beyond that of any other marshal. He was Minister of War, and if he gathered an army to him, he could put anyone he wanted on the throne, or make Napoleon an unchallenged dictator. He would be an immensely dangerous enemy to the Allied forces. He was arguably better than Napoleon at the tactical level, and at least as good at the strategic and possibly even theatre levels. He had an enormous list of victories, some better than some of Napoleon's, and he had always drilled his men to maintain iron discipline no matter what. This was not a man to overlook or underestimate it, especially as he had a bitter hatred of Fouché. Finally, on the 21st of June, after many twists and turns, the Emperor reached Paris. He refused the offer of a better carriage on arrival, sticking to a less noticeable one, lent to him on the journey. By a less well-known route, he entered the city. I previously said it was unusual for a breakfast to make the history books, but Napoleon's pre-Waterloo breakfast did. Well, today, even more unusually, a bath is going to be critical to the fate of Europe. It is sometimes on these strange curiosities that fate can hinge. The day before Napoleon entered Paris, it had been agreed by his generals that the Emperor had to go straight to the Chamber of Representatives to inform them of everything, to make it clear that France as a nation was in danger and that they should put aside any petty bad feeling and think only of helping to preserve the nation itself from utter ruin. This stirring address should come from Napoleon while still dressed in his army uniform, smeared with blood, his face blackened with smoke and dirt. He should tell them he was going to return to Belgium, 
at the head of Gushi's men and that they had a duty to rally the nation and support him. Surely it would be impossible for them to say no to a man clearly fresh from battling for the existence of the French Republic. Yet despite agreeing to this plan, when he arrived, Napoleon decided to take a bath. His circle of ministers and generals gathered outside and had time to worry. Crucial time slipped away again, as it did at Quatre Bras and early at Waterloo. Finally, Napoleon emerged. Minister Carnot recommended a defence of Paris to give time needed for the consolidation of all French military forces from other areas, and then a massive counter-attack. Others were less confident, and argued that only if Napoleon gained the confidence and support of the Chamber of Deputies could he continue. Marshal Davout was having none of this. He effectively urged Napoleon to become supreme military dictator for a short period, and move the government out of Paris. Fouché immediately disagreed, saying he was sure, sure the government would give Napoleon everything he wanted during such an emergency, if the emperor would only put himself in their hands as a show of good faith. This was a breathtaking piece of chutzpah, considering that Fouché was secretly warning the chambers that Napoleon was planning on becoming a military dictator, and Fouché had been secretly priming Lafayette to bring matters to a head in the chambers and to finish Napoleon politically. The Marquis de Lafayette has done wonderful things in support of the American Revolution and is justly celebrated for those achievements. But in the arena of French politics, he seems utterly hopeless in comparison. He believed that Fouché was working to save the Republic from the military dictatorship of Napoleon. It is baffling why he would trust Fouché, but it is also baffling how he could think that deposing Napoleon and effectively neutering the French army would be a good idea in the middle of an invasion. Still, with the ideals of both revolutions in heart, Lafayette seemed to truly believe he was destined to lead France to a new age of Republican enlightenment. He rose to his feet in the Chamber of Deputies and gave a genuinely stirring speech, graceful yet passionate and compelling. He also made a strong proposal of five articles. Article two of that was to have the Chambers sit in permanent session with any attempt to dissolve them being treason. The choice was now out of Napoleon's hands. The government would neither dissolve nor leave Paris. When he heard the news, Napoleon knew what it meant, saying, quote, I expected this. I should have dissolved those men before I left. It is finished. They will ruin France. End quote. Fouché's secret plans had borne fruit. Marshal Davout now flatly refused to proceed with any military coup. He was unwilling to have his troops storm the chamber with the attendant loss of life. Before the articles were passed, he would have done so. But the moment 
had been lost. The time for Napoleon to seize power had drained away whilst he was in his bath. Debate raged in the chambers, but it was now clear they wanted Napoleon gone. Lucien gave a passionate defence of his brother, but Lafayette skilfully rebuffed it. Now, only real options left to Napoleon were to either rally the army and the mobs of Paris to him and kill the politicians in the chambers, or to abdicate. More than the Chamber of Deputies, Napoleon himself understood the real situation, saying, quote, It concerns me not. It concerns France. They want me to abdicate. Have they considered the inevitable consequences of my abdication? It is around me, around my name, that the army is gathered. Take me away, and the army will dissolve. If I abdicate today, in two days' time, there will be no army. This army does not understand your subtleties. Do you think the metaphysical axioms, declarations of rights, parliamentary speeches will stop it from disbanding? End quote. This seems to have been a constant failing of many revolutions and governments facing invasion, a constant obsession with speeches, declarations, proclamations, and all the trappings without dealing with the often grim reality outside their bubble. As Napoleon went on to say, quote, When the enemy is 25 leagues away, you do not overthrow your government with impunity. Do they think they can turn aside the foreigners with phrases? End quote. That really cleaves to the heart of the problem. Politicians thought that the Allies were only interested in Napoleon, and if he went, well, then France would be left alone to form a peaceful Republican government. Napoleon understood this to be delusional fantasy land thinking. The enemy now wanted to conquer France. The real question was could they be stopped, or if not, what kind of deal could France strike with them? If France kept a meaningful army in the field and showed determined resistance, then at least some of her post-war bargaining position might be started from a firmer footing. Some of Napoleon's marshals like Suchet were already beginning to gain victories in other areas. Still, the next day, after some wrangling and bitterness, Napoleon wrote his abdication in favour of his son, Napoleon II. With the abdication came Marshal Davout's calm situational report to the Chamber of Deputies on the armed forces. He noted that Marshal Grouchy was returning in good order with his two corps. Marshal Soult had gathered together 3,000 Imperial Guard and other line infantry. In all, Marshal Davout felt he could put together a disciplined corps force of around 60,000 men. As he said, quote, a strong barrier will be opposed to foreign invasion and you will have an army sufficiently respectable to support your negotiations with an enemy who has proved that he does not always keep his promises with fidelity, end quote. Fouché must have had kittens at the mere thought of Marshal Davout as a sole commander of French forces. After all, Davout was right. A strong army meant a strong negotiating hand for France and therefore less chance for Fouché to get Louis XVIII not only back on the throne but under his thumb. 
the Allied armies had been badly battered at Waterloo, so its effective fighting strength was actually surprisingly low. I've seen figures of Wellington only having an effective strength of around 50,000 at this stage. Worse for Fouché, some of the politicians looked thoughtful. Perhaps the abdication had been premature. Maybe they should try Davout's option. It must have gone almost without saying that Davout would immediately have had Fouché shot. Luckily for Fouché, but disastrously for France, Marshal Ney was about to intervene in matters again. He had, in the words of Napoleon, ruined France at Quatre Bras and Waterloo, and he was about to do it again. He leapt up to give a passionate rant about how the army was destroyed, and further resistance was folly. He claimed to have seen the army's total destruction, and that resistance was hopeless. This simply wasn't true. Ney had basically snapped under the intense pressure. He had betrayed Napoleon, then he had betrayed the king, then failed Napoleon again, and he had failed to find the hero's death he had wanted at Waterloo. Now he was close to raving. Whatever his beliefs, reasons or state of mind, the die was now firmly cast. The military resistance that Napoleon and marshals hoped for was no longer an option. Marshal Soult was relieved of his command, which was given to the less talented Grouchy, who would in turn report to Davout. Whilst Davout was given supreme military command, there was no prospect of further resistance. Paris was surrendered under the Convention of St. Cloud, and on the 7th of July, 1815, Allies occupied Paris. The next day, Louis XVIII was made king again. Napoleon fell into lethargy. He had initially refused to leave the capital, trying to get himself appointed a general of the Republic. He had spotted a vulnerability in the Allied positions that he could counterattack. The government rebuffed him. There was no way in hell they would allow a reinvented Napoleon the Republican general to sweep in and save the day. So he loitered. His power ebbed away. He eventually left the capital and travelled south. His few friends were desperately urging him to make a run for it, to flee to the United States, or to South America, or even to the Ottoman Empire, anywhere out of reach of the French government or the Allies. Napoleon seemed to change his mind constantly, even reaching out to Fouché of all people for passports and permission to leave France. Quite why he decided this was necessary was baffling. He could have used his loyalist troops and loyalists in the navy to force an escape. Needless to say, Fouché provided a lot of warm and encouraging words to Napoleon, but no real passports or permission to leave. Eventually, on the 15th of July 1815, Napoleon decided to give himself up to Captain Maitland on the HMS Bellerophon and the Royal Navy and to throw himself on England's mercy. Captain Maitland and the Royal Navy were naturally delighted and Napoleon became a celebrated figure on board ship. The British government was firm that Napoleon would not be allowed 
to land in England, they worried that he would charm his way into the aristocracy and become an unexploded bomb. They might have been right. Instead, after much wrangling and a good deal of pleading on his part, he was exiled to St Helena. This was a far cry from his much more comfortable exile on Elba, and his British jailers treated him appallingly. Whether he merited it or escaped a well-deserved hanging depends very greatly on your view of the causes of the Napoleonic War. I've tried hard to explain that reality is always a lot more complicated than the easy answers of popular culture. Now, though, the first true world war was over. It had been fought across the continents of Europe, in the deserts of North Africa, on the high seas and in the colonies of the great powers, involving India, Africa, South and North America. This left France now, as it had been before the revolution, with the prospect of a useless monarchy that couldn't address the challenges of the 19th century. It would be a long time until France reclaimed her preeminence on the continent. For now, the Allied great powers would settle the balance of power in Europe. In the next episode or two, we will discover how the great and the good would play with the lives of men as baubles to suit their own visions of the future. For a lot of brave marshals, a day of reckoning was ahead, as vengeful kings, princes and nobles sought payback for the constant humiliations where men born to poverty had risen to the top through sheer merit, thereby exposing as false the claims of kings and aristocrats to some kind of superior breeding, grace or ability. Marshal Ney would be executed after a show trial. Murat would meet a similar fate, whilst many others went to far more ugly deaths. For now, though, we also say goodbye to what has been called the finest army the British ever fielded. It isn't quite accurate because the army of the peninsula that Wellington commanded was actually not in the main present at Waterloo. But when we look at the Napoleonic Wars in total, the British and Allied army had performed incredibly well under Wellington. Rough, tough, uncultured and largely uneducated. They looked shambolic and seemed to be officered by dandies with a besetting alcohol problem. But to everyone's surprise, after the disaster of the American War of Independence, they had fought the French to a standstill in Portugal, worked with the brilliant Spanish partisans to turn Spain into a graveyard for the French, expelled Napoleon from France and stood triumphant. Then they had stood again with the Allied troops and the Prussians and held off the last great Napoleonic army and the invincible Imperial Guard. It had been a long, hard war and now the army was about to march into history. They would be scattered in garrisons around the world or sent home to see if there really was to be a land fit for heroes. And this is a crucial moment in British history because it really functions as a kind of creation myth for the nation in much the way that World War II would go on to do for another generation or two. A British army of English, Irish, Scots and Welsh had fought together. A generation before, it was touch and go if the English and Scots would be at war with each other. There was also 
the military disaster of the American War of Independence, a nadir in British military history where the British displayed a level of ineptness that nearly broke their military reputation, with only some bright spots amongst the Navy. The Napoleonic Wars changed everything. The Navy had seized control of basically the entire ocean surface of the planet. The British Army had gone from a small, seemingly often defeated rabble to the pinnacle of triumph. They had gone toe-to-toe with the absolute best in Europe, which at that time probably meant the world. They might not have been better at strategy or clever manoeuvres, but they had displayed a tough discipline that no one could believe. This meant that for the next century, it became almost unthinkable that the British Redcoat could suffer defeat, as far as the British were concerned. For the Scots, the Highlanders had been newcomers to the British Army, distrusted and distrustful, still loyal to their clan chiefs, and with memories of the rising of 1745 under Bonnie Prince Charlie, yet now they were admired. The fierce cries of Scotland forever had rung out during the desperate bayonet charges. The war cries of the Scots and the terrible, mighty, powerful sound of the pipes would now ring out across the world as the Highlanders and Lowlanders came a key part of the growing empire and fierce warriors in the Victorian army. The Welsh also came out of Waterloo with a glowing reputation, as did the Irish, especially to the heroics of the 27th Inniskillen. Fittingly, a bronze soldier of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, an Irish Dragoon, an English Grenadier, and a Scottish Highlander, stand next to the statue of the Duke of Wellington in Hyde Park, all forged, from captured French cannons. This was the birth of the united Victorian army. And Britain would not see their like again. The soldiers of the future would be very different, starting to be drawn from factories, less well-fed, with rickets and deformities, yet better educated, with drink on the decline, and the birth of intense religion amongst the ranks. But for many years after Waterloo, many a soldier and sergeant in a desperate spot somewhere overseas would say, Ha, this is nothing. I ain't running from this rabble. I was at Waterloo against Boney, and that was a proper fight. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And we are now at the end of the Hundred Days and the end of the Napoleonic Wars. The way is now clear for us to move forward and explore some more of the world together. Okay, so I'm looking forward to the next few episodes. See you soon. 